0: Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Good, good. Are you ready to study God's word this morning? Awesome. I am too. Before we get there, I just wanted to say one thing. You know, it's, it's almost been six months since we came here uh, to be a part of First Free Church. We're, we're not quite there yet. We're about five and a half months at this point. And what I want to do right now is just say a special word of thanks to all of our staff. And here's why. Here's why. The, the, our staff have had to be very flexible and adapt. You know, when a new coach comes into a football team, they bring in a new offense and a new defense, and they've got to learn new ways of doing things. And so there's a lot of adaptation that has to happen. There are a lot of flexibility. And our staff have been so willing, so flexible, such good hearts and everything. I am just so thankful for all of them. And I just want you to know that you have an amazing staff here, and they have just been awesome to work with these last few months. So thank you to our staff at First Free Church. We appreciate you. I am so blessed to be able to work with them and they are doing a fantastic job. You know, some of the stuff that we're working on here, some of the, the little things that we're doing, you're gonna see, and some of the things are just behind the scenes. There's a ton of work going on behind the scenes at this church right now, as is to be expected with a transition and a new leader coming in. That's just kind of how that works. So we're just really thankful for them and the great heart and willingness and attitude and, and teamwork that is going into all of that. Well, hey, almost a year ago, Before I was here, John and Don started a series with you in the book of Mark, and they decided to do something that I think is pretty cool. As they've been going through the book of Mark, they've been taking breaks along the way to cover different topics and series and different things. And Personally, I really like that because that makes for, I think, a much more engaging time in the Word together. It means that instead of spending uh, a long, long time, in some cases years, going through one book together, there's a little bit of a break, a little bit of a, a fresh Approach in there along the way, and it certainly makes things much more engaging for us as speakers. Instead of saying, okay, here we are in Mark again for the 50th week, we can actually kind of break things up, and it gives us a little more energy uh, to cover a variety of topics along the way. I think it's a good thing. However, there is one negative to it, and that is that when you come back to our main study again in the book of Mark, you now have a gap period where we just went through the Undivided series and then a little mini-series for Easter, and now we're back in Mark, and I'll bet you don't remember what we just covered back in January. So I'm going to give you a little bit of review to catch us up on that, and I think that will suffice for us. So back in the book of Mark, at the beginning of Mark, Mark starts with John the Baptist and, and what John the Baptist is doing, but he very quickly shifts his attention to Jesus once Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus starts to gather His disciples to Him. He attracts a broad following of many different people who come out to see Him, and He continues to engage with them. He heals them. He uh, teaches them. One of the things that made Jesus really stand out as a religious teacher is that unlike many of the other religious elites of the day, He actually got down and dirty with people that were sinners with people who other religious leaders would not want to engage with or interact with at all, keep their distance from, condemn from a distance. He actually got involved with their lives and he, he went to their houses for their dinner parties and he connected with them and he healed people. He touched people to heal them who were considered untouchable. So Jesus was a very unique guy, Mark tells us. He did things that the other religious leaders would not be caught dead doing. He walked and he taught. He taught. He healed people and he taught. He performed miracles and he taught. He fed thousands of people. He calmed a storm. He healed the blind and the lame. He walked on water. He removed demons and all the while he taught. Sometimes he taught plainly and sometimes he taught in parables that he would later explain to his disciples. But he was the ultimate teachable moment master. And there's actually a little mini principle in there for us. If we're trying to be like Jesus, there are many times where we have opportunities to speak into other people's lives and maybe teach them something, help them to grow that we don't always take advantage of. And of course, this is especially relevant to those of us who are parents and have kids who are living at home who we are trying to train and raise up to be godly young people. There are teachable moments that we need to take advantage of, and Jesus was the master of this. He was constantly teaching in all situations. There's a fig tree, let's have a lesson about it. There's the temple, let's have a lesson about it. There's the Jordan River, let's have a lesson about it. As he was going, he was just teaching, teaching, teaching. Well, eventually, Jesus took a pause in his public teaching ministry to focus on intensively teaching his disciples and preparing them for what he was about to endure. And so we talked about this in January, how just north of the Sea of Galilee, he spent some time just with his disciples, teaching them. He told them that he would die and be raised to life on the third day. He transformed into showing them a a bit of his glory for a few of them temporarily to give them confidence for the future, the rough times that were ahead. Then he traveled back down south to Judea where he would, again, have public crowds gather around him to listen to him teach. And that is where we are going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. It's in Mark chapter 10 that we're going to pick up, Mark chapter 10, verse 13. But don't just turn there yet, because I want to start in Romans 12. And you're like, how on earth does that make any sense? We are going to start in Romans chapter 12, and here's why. The New Testament authors that came after the Gospels, they give us principles, inspired insight that help us to interpret and apply what we see in the Gospels. So there are things that Paul will state very plainly and directly and bluntly in his epistles that we get to go back then and see lived out in Jesus' life. So Romans chapter 12 is actually where we are going to start this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse one. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want to use your mobile devices in the UVersion Bible app, we're in there as First Free Church. You can get all of that at efree.org Bible if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But before we do that, would you just close your eyes with me? Take a moment. Let's all pray together that God would reveal to us what he wants to share in his word. Lord, we are thankful for the Bible. We are thankful that it is your word to us, how we are to live our lives, to learn more about you. And I pray, God, that today as we study it, that you would illuminate principles that we can apply, things that you want us to learn today. Maybe it's not even something I'm going to say. Maybe it's something that you're going to communicate with the prompting of your spirit, something that someone will take away that I didn't even think about or intend this morning. But God, I pray that you would take this act of studying your word as a worshipful offering to you an acknowledgement of the value that we place on the message that you've given us and on studying it to know how you want us to live our lives and how you want us to respond to you. So Lord, would you bless this time together? And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 starting in verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a holy, a living rather, and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Now, when he talks about pleading there, this is an urging. This is a begging. This is an urgent word. It's not quite a command, but it's more of a I beg of you, would you please do this thing? Pleading with you to give your bodies, your lives to God, everything you are to God because of what he has done for you. Let them be a holy, a living sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. Now, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, will later in the book of Philippians tell them that he views the giving of his life as a sacrifice to God. He will say that our acts of service to God are a sacrifice, an offering to God. Then he talks about this thing here, which is really interesting, true worship. True worship in the Greek is logiken latrean, Logiken latrean. And Logiken, or true, is really a word that we would compare to the word logic. Okay? So this means that Paul is talking about a logical worship. It means rational. It means reasonable. Some versions will say it's a reasonable act of service for you to do this. This is a reasonable thing to do. And here's what's cool about this word. This word was actually used in outside literature, not in the Bible, to describe the difference between superstitious religion and rational planning, between superstition or mythology and something that made rational sense. And what Paul is arguing here is that this is not some kind of metaphorical thing, give your bodies to God. This is not some kind of a ritual thing. This is a rational thing. This makes sense because of what God has done for us. And that's what the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about, how God has saved us through Jesus Christ, how he sent his son to die for us in our place. And so it is only logical, it is only rational that we would give our whole selves to God. Latrean means worship or service. It is a logical act of service or worship. It's reasonable, it's rational that we should give ourselves fully to God as an act of worship to him. Then the question, of course, is how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we give ourselves fully to God? And here is the answer. In verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Two things To notice here a distinction between two things. First of all, don't do this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's external action, external behavior. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's internal thinking. So a distinction here between the external action of the world, whatever is contrary to God's will, and the internal thinking that God wants to transform in your minds. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now there's a principle that I want to introduce to you here called the iceberg principle. And this is something that we'll probably come back to in future messages and talk about together, because it's applicable to a lot of different things that we go through in our lives, a lot of challenges that we wrestle with. But here's the basic principle in a nutshell. When you look at an iceberg... What you are probably seeing above the water is about 10% of that iceberg. There's like 90% below the water that you can't see. And the iceberg principle says that the things that are visible, the things that you can actually see, are not even close to comparing to the things that are invisible that are underneath the surface. Those things that are under the surface are, are more foundational. They're bigger. They're more important. They're more complex. There's a lot more going on there than what you can actually see. So let me just kind of illustrate this for you. Uh, With a with a drawing here, and if you want, in the back of your program, you could you could draw one of these along with me. You could just kind of draw a diamond there, and you could add some water to it if you want to. Go ahead and add a little little fish there. That's a terrible fish. Let's try that again. There we go. Maybe something like that. It's your it's your program. You do whatever you want with it. But draw yourself a little diagram like that, and we're going to add some words here that are going to kind of make it clear what Paul is talking about here. So. Above the surface, we have our actions, our external actions. This is where we tend to spend most of our time if we're trying to change something about ourselves. It's all about the things that we do. It's all about our behaviors. But underneath the surface, we have our emotions, we have our thoughts, and there's our core beliefs and hurts. Most of us spend an awful lot of time working on that. Behavioral modification. What are the things I'm doing that I want to change? What are the things I'm not doing that I want to do? And we don't spend nearly enough time on that. The things that are inside, the things that are underneath, the things that are invisible. And Paul is suggesting here that we start by working on this instead and let that affect that. In other words, don't focus on the external actions of the world, don't copy those actions, but instead let God transform you by working on this. And here's the principle here. Real lasting life change starts with internal transformation and results in external action. Real lasting life change starts with internal transformation and results in external action. Now, many of us, without even realizing it, have put up walls inside that keep us from being transformed. We have put up blockades. We have put up walls inside, walls of bitterness, walls of hate, walls of ego, walls of pride, walls of control and power, walls that we have put in place, and we may not even fully realize it, But we have put these up in opposition to the transformation that God wants to do inside. And then we do all these external things, these actions, to make us look like we've got our act together, when really our motivations inside are still very self centered. And we want to acquire things and we want to acquire power. And we want to acquire control and we want to get what we desire. And our internal thinking then is not godly, it is worldly. And we may not even fully realize it because those thoughts, those walls are so deeply rooted in our internals that, that we don't understand that they're there. We may actually think we're doing God's will because we're so confused by the self-centeredness that is in our hearts because we have not been transformed by God into what he wants us to be internally. Now, some people are more transparent about this than others. Some people just kind of wear it all on their sleeve, and you know exactly where they're coming from. Other people are really, really good at hiding it. Some people have crafted fantastic masks that they get to put on, maybe, maybe only when they come to church, maybe only when they're out in public. Usually it's at home when those masks start to come off, and you start to see the, the real core inside. The emotions, the thoughts, the core beliefs, the hurts, all of that stuff that ends up coming out in the actions, but they've done such a good job of masking that when they're in public. They say the right things. They do the right things. They don't do the wrong things. They appear to have their spiritual act together, but deep down inside, their internal motivations are self-centered, not God-centered. Real, lasting life change starts with internal transformation and results in external action. Internal transformation by God and external action by the believer. Why do you keep doing those things? Why do you keep saying those things? Why have you not been able to get over that hurt or that hang-up or whatever it is that still haunts you? It's because we keep putting all of our effort toward changing our behavior and not letting God transform us inside. All that stuff that's underneath the surface that oftentimes we're able to do a really good job of keeping hidden. So that's our principle From Romans 12, 1 and 2. And now we are going to go back to the book of Mark. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. Back to the book of Mark. And we're going to start in verse 13. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Here's what it says. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now, why is this? Why would they want to keep the kids from coming to Jesus? Well, because culturally in this time, children were treated more like property than people oftentimes. They did not have nearly the value that they have today. Today, a lot of families of all kinds will do all sorts of things, go to great lengths for their kids. They will let their kids run them ragged. They will do some event every single day because of their kids. But back then, kids were treated oftentimes more like property. In fact, if there was a kid that that a family did not want, they simply discarded them with no repercussions. And whole industries had developed around these discarded children. They would be raised up to be gladiators, trained to fight, or they would be turned into prostitutes. And that is how society dealt with these unwanted children. They just used them in these kinds of horrible industries to serve the desires of adults who could pay for their depraved fantasies. And while the disciples certainly weren't doing that, they were following this cultural principle that kids are not important. Let the adults in to see Jesus. Keep the kids back because they're a total waste of time. And what does Jesus say? When Jesus saw what was happening, he was, and this is kind of crazy, angry. He was angry with them, angry with his disciples. He said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Listen, can you be angry and not sin? Can you be angry and not sin? it's not a trick question. There's an example right there. Can you be angry and not sin? Yeah, Jesus was. And I'll be honest with you, I think we could actually use a little bit more righteous anger sometimes. We've got a lot of complacent Christians who are not involved in making a difference in the world, who are not involved in bringing the gospel to a lost and dying world, who are not involved in correcting some of the injustices that are in the world complacent and apathetic why because a righteous anger has not filled us to where we say i'm going to do something about that and i'm not talking about posting on facebook i'm not talking about passive aggressive comments i'm talking about actually getting up and doing something because we see an injustice like jesus did and we have a righteous anger and we react in an appropriate righteous holy way focused on the right things then jesus says i tell you the truth In verse 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children into his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Maybe I can illustrate it this way. If someone were to walk up to you on the street and offer you a piece of candy, what would you think? (laughs) Run? (laughs) Yeah. You probably, that did not take long at all. You probably would not be very trusting if someone came up to you and just said, hey, would you like a piece of candy? You would not trust them. You would wonder what's going on here. What's the catch? What's in this thing? What did they do to this? Now do the same thing with the child. What happens? A young child who doesn't know any better gets a piece of bright, colorful candy and there's no part of their brains that goes, I wonder if this might be poison. They don't think that. They just unwrap it, pop it in their mouth and devour it. That's how children are trusting of what's going on around them. If you meet a person in a store and within the first two minutes, this person that you've never met before says, hey, I'd love to take you out to lunch this week and, and talk to you about something what are you thinking? Probably not going to happen. What are they trying to get me into? What kind of expectation are they going to have of me? What is this all about? That's just not normal behavior. I just met you within two minutes of our conversation. You're wanting to take me someplace to get a bite to eat. I don't know about that. But what happens if you walk up to a child and say, would you like to go get ice cream? Yeah. That child is not thinking, I wonder what kind of social obligation I'll be under if I accept this. I wonder if I'll have to repay this favor. I wonder if they're going to expect me to then take them out to ice cream. I wonder if I'm going to have to do something to earn this. No. A young child is just thinking, cool, free ice cream. No obligation, no expectation in return because when you give a young child a gift, they don't think they have to earn it. They don't think they have to do something to deserve it. They don't think they have to do something in return for you. They don't think there's any kind of obligation there. They just do two things. They accept it and they enjoy it. And that's the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here. See, it's very simple It's very simple what God wants from us and yet it's also very hard because we adults, we overcomplicate things. Jesus says that the ones who will actually be in the kingdom of God, they will have accepted that gift like a child with childlike faith. Not something they could have earned, not something that they deserve, not something they have to pay back, not something where there's some weird social obligation afterward. Something that they just accept and trust. Now, Paul would say later in Romans 12 that it's only reasonable, it's only logical for you to then live your life for God. But living your life for God is not a way to pay back for what he did. Living your life for God is not a way to somehow earn what he did for you. What he did for you is totally of him, totally a free gift. You can't do anything to get that. And yet so often that's the way we approach God. Earning, childlike faith is trusting. So contrast this childlike faith that Jesus is talking about, that he says is necessary to enter the kingdom of God with our next story. Look on in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that culturally in this time, you would not refer to a teacher or a religious leader as being good because only God is good. And so it's almost blasphemous. It's very rare to find someone calling someone good in a Jewish context of this day. It's usually referred to God. God is good. And so what Jesus is probably saying here is, are you equating me with God? If so, you've really figured something out here. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And of course, Jesus was God. So God is, Jesus is also good. But the question that the man has is what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this was actually a common cultural question of the day. What can I do to get eternal life? This is what was on everybody's minds. This was being asked of a lot of different people. You see this in many different Jewish sects of the day. Trying to answer this question. What is the minimum requirement? What do I have to do to get in, to get this thing? And it's quite possible that this man, who we will later find out was very rich, actually thought that there was some element where he could buy this. It's very possible because he was so rich and these traveling teachers like Jesus and their posses who would travel around teaching people uh, spiritually, they would have benefactors who would give them money to help support their ministry and what they were doing and kind of fund their campaigns. And we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that this rich man, by asking this question, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That means to acquire, to gain possession of. What must I do to get this? It's very possible that he was thinking, can I give you some money? And then you, the spiritual guru, will tell me that I'm safe for eternal life. And you will kind of put in a good word for me, so to speak, and guarantee eternal life. We don't know for sure if that's what he was thinking, but it's, it's quite possible. Either way, Jesus did not respond in the way that he wanted, but instead he gave him a test. Here's what he does, verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Jesus is talking. You know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. And remember that Jesus, as he's saying this, he has already taught his followers that to dwell on these things in your heart is the same as to do them. He taught that if you have hatred in your heart, it's like committing murder. If you have lust in your heart, it's like committing adultery or stealing. And so the right response of this man ought to be, I haven't done that, at least not internally. I am not perfect. I don't have this all figured out. But this man only hears the externals. He only understands the externals. And so here's what he says. Teacher... I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. In other words, I should be good. I've done all the right stuff. I've been all the right places. I should be good. But there's still this part of me that is concerned that maybe I won't have eternal life, that maybe it's not enough. I've maintained this appearance of religion, but I don't yet feel accepted by God. What else can I do to guarantee that I will get eternal life? Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. And at this point, I think the man probably perked up and went, aha, here it is. What is it, Jesus? What's the one thing? Is it it money? Here you go. Is it something with a temple? I can do that. Is it a special prayer I need to pray? What is it that I need to do to get eternal life? And here's what Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. In other words, just not sell your possessions and give 10% to the church. Not sell all your possessions and give some money to people in need. Sell your possessions and give it all away. Go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad for he had many possessions. He was a rich man. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. Why? Because if anyone had their act together spiritually, it was this guy. If anyone had done all the right things, it was this guy. If anyone looked from outward appearances like they had the spiritual stuff in place, it's this guy. The Gospel of Luke has the same story, tells us this man was also a religious leader. The Gospel of Matthew tells us this was a young guy, and Mark tells us he was a rich guy. So you put the three together, you get a young, rich guy who's already made it to a place of religious prominence, and on outward appearances has looked like he's kept all the commandments. If this guy can't get into the kingdom of heaven, who can? It amazed them. It was hard for him to be saved, Jesus said, because his outward appearance was not the result of inward transformation The things that he did, he actually did for himself and not for God. He didn't come to Jesus and say, what can I do to better glorify God? What can I do to better serve God? What can I do to better love God? No, he said, what can I do to get what I want from God? And Jesus gave him this test, a test that revealed where where his devotion really was. A test that revealed what he really loved more than God, which was his possessions, his wealth. But Jesus said again in verse 24, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with being rich. The Bible never says it's wrong to have money. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not money itself. There's nothing wrong with having money, but the simple reality is that if you have a lot of money, the temptation is always there to start finding your security in that money instead of in God. If you have a lot of resources, your temptation is going to be to rely on that, to trust in that, to build up those kind of storehouses for you here instead of trusting in God to take care of you. If all of that was taken away, if you lost everything, would you still be okay? Okay. Would you still trust in God? Would you still have faith that he is going to take care of and provide for you? The disciples were astounded. Then, who in the world can be saved? They asked. That's a good question. If this guy, who seems like he's got everything figured out at such a young age in life, if this guy can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? He's got all the resources. He's got status as a religious leader. He's lived a pious life. He's an upstanding Jewish man of God from the outward appearance. And if this guy can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus is essentially going to say in the next few verses, yeah, that's the point. You can't save yourself. Jesus, verse 27, looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Many who have lots of resources now... Many who on outward appearances look like they have it all together. Many who like this young, rich, religious man look to the world like they've got their spiritual lives figured out. The greatest now will be the least then because under the surface, internally, inside, in their core beliefs and thoughts and emotions and everything that's inside of them, they have not been transformed by God. Outward appearances, very different from inward appearances. And those who seem least important now, will be the greatest then. Because you may not have anything. You may not have any resources. You may not have any position or power or prestige. And yet God has done a work inside of you that has brought about a a humility and a graciousness and a following after him and a learning from him. And the world may never know your name, but as far as God is concerned, he may have a great place for you in eternity because of your devotion and faithfulness And letting him transform you from the inside out. It reminds me of this amazing message that God gives to Samuel. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel. And he finds some great candidates that just, I mean, they're they're, they're tall and they've got great stature and they're rugged guys. And these are the next kings of Israel for sure. And God passes them by and here's what he says. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. See, sometimes we go to great lengths to change the externals, to change the outward things, to change the things that everyone else sees, when what God wants to do is transform us on the inside. The hardest thing for us to do is exactly what God asks. Surrender what is inside fully to Him. Surrender it to Him. But see, we've built up these walls. These walls of brokenness, these walls of anger, these walls of bitterness and hatred and power and ego and pride and control and many other things that we have built up. And the message of Mark 10 quite simply is this. Jesus prefers the simple trusting faith of the children to the complex behavioral modification of the rich man. Let me say that again. Jesus prefers the simple, trusting faith of the children to the complex behavior modification of the rich man. Now, I want to be clear about something here because I don't want you to walk away from here and get the wrong idea. I'm going to put the iceberg back up on the screen. None of us have this all figured out. Not one of us is perfect. Not one of us has this all put together, every single one of us needs God's forgiveness and guidance and grace and patience every single day. But some of us have some pretty hard walls that are built up internally. Walls of self-centeredness that are in place, some of which go back decades, that we have in there that are keeping the transforming work of God in our hearts from happening because of our stubbornness, because of our pride, because of our ego. Things where we have not fully surrendered to God every part of what is inside of us to let Him transform us from the inside out so that what He does in here will affect what happens in our actions there. What God offers us is not a quick fix. It is a process. When He saves us positionally, He sees us as being perfected. From His perspective... We are no longer the, the, the horrible sinner that we are in deserving of judgment because that judgment has been now paid for by Jesus Christ. And so we no longer have that over us. He sees us positionally as if we are perfect. But practically speaking, we're still on this earth. We're still in these mortal bodies. We still struggle with this, the temptation to sin and we wrestle with it every single day. It is a process that God wants to take us to. And one day, God will take our practical selves and make them match our positional selves. One day God is going to take us and remove all those bad desires and perfect us, and now all we're going to have is good desires and we're just going to serve and love Him, and everything's going to be great. But He hasn't done that yet. Look around, He hasn't done that yet. We are all imperfect people, and we're going through this process of growth, a process that we call sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. All right, you're all awake, and you all know that word. Sanctification, it means to set apart something, to take something, it's the process of taking something and setting it apart as holy. Setting it apart for God's use, and that's what God wants to do in our hearts, internally inside of us, with our minds. He wants to change our insides. He wants to set them apart. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 12, to give yourselves to God as a holy and living sacrifice surrender. Surrender to Him. It's reasonable. It makes sense based on what He's done for us. Don't copy the behavior of the world where it disagrees with God's commands, but let God transform you by changing the way you think. Some versions say renewing your mind And as he renews your mind, you will be able, he says, to test and approve or to determine how to act in ways that are good and pleasing according to God's will. In other words, what God does in here to transform you internally is going to have an impact externally. God wants to change you from the inside out. Now, for some of you, these principles may be old news. You may have heard this all before be very familiar with this but some of you may be hearing it for the first time and if you're hearing it for the first time my message for you is that Jesus wants to transform you from the inside out so you can be a new person that's why he came and he died on the cross to pay a penalty for your sins that you can't pay because you can't do enough good you can't avoid enough bad to become acceptable to God It is only through the work that Jesus has done for us and offered to us, and we have to accept that with faith like a child. Not assuming there's anything we can do to earn it, not assuming there's anything we have to do to pay it back. It is a gift that he offers to us. Romans chapter 10 puts it this way Paul says, and that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. And if that's you this morning and you recognize that you need your heart to be changed by God, that you need to be transformed by God, in a minute, we're gonna sing a song, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing and it's a time where you can just come forward and we wanna talk to you about how you can get to know Jesus. This is, this is a time the perfect time for you to surrender everything that you have inside and say, God, I want you to transform my life. I want you to be my guide, to, to show me where to go from here on out. I give my whole life to you. I want you to change the way I think so that I can follow after you. I'm not going to try to do all the behaviors and actions to make it look like I've changed. I'm, I'm, God, I'm going I'm to let those walls go and let you change me from the inside out. I'd like to ask everybody right now, if you would, just close your eyes for a minute. Close your eyes with me. Spend a minute in prayer. Think about what God may be teaching you from what we studied today. And maybe you're someone who needs to make a decision to follow after Jesus. Maybe you're someone who needs prayer for something going on in your life. Maybe you're someone who needs prayer for a wall that you have, that you've had for a long time. Our prayer team is going to come forward right now. Our band is going to come forward right now. And we're going to pray and then sing a song. And as we sing that song, if you need prayer in your life, if you need counsel for something that's going on right now, if you want to tell us about you giving your life to Jesus and wanting Him to transform you, if you need more questions answered about that, this is a perfect time to come forward and get some answers. This is a perfect time for you to come forward and get prayer, whatever it is, whatever's going on in your life. And maybe some of you have some walls that have been built up for a long, long time. Maybe some of you have some things inside that that you really need a group of brothers and sisters in Christ to gather around you and help you to defeat. We have a ministry here called Celebrate Recovery. It's a great opportunity for you to connect with other believers in Jesus Christ who will help you in your journey to surrender these things to God and let him transform you from the inside out. We've got representatives from Celebrate Recovery at the front. They're wearing Celebrate Recovery shirts. Come see them if you want to know more about that ministry or go to our information center or go to our website at efree.org and you can get information about that. One thing before I pray, we did not have a benevolence offering last week because it was Easter. We do today. As you leave through the doors, you'll have the option to give some money. All of that will go to help people in our community who are in need. I'm going to pray now. And after I do, come forward for prayer, to show that you're dedicating your life to Jesus, for help with the walls that are in your life that need to be broken down, to let God transform you from the inside out. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you never give up on us. We thank you for the continued work that you do in our lives. We thank you that you give us us chance after chance after chance. You are so forgiving, so loving. And Lord, we just pray now, that as people in this room are, are thinking about the message this morning, thinking about what we've communicated from your word, the principles that you want to change us from the inside out. If there is something in someone's life right now that you are speaking to them, Lord, please help them to have victory over that thing, that wall, to tear it down, to let you transform them from the inside out, to grow in their walk with you, Lord. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.